Amen. Thank you, choir. It's the only place to stand, right? All other ground is sinking sand, as the other song says. Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. When I was in seminary, I had a classmate that got enamored with the Old Testament. Uh, He was a Gentile, and don't know exactly when he came to Christ. I met him in in seminary. It's been 23 years ago, a long time ago. And this, this focus on the Old Testament began with with his family, he started reading Deuteronomy, and he had young kids, and he wanted to teach them um, the ways of the Lord, and so he's reading all about how that was done in the, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and then he and his family started following other requirements of, of the Mosaic Law. And they began keeping the Sabbath on, they would do that together, and when when asked about it, he, he said he hadn't abandoned Christ. He said these things helped him know the Lord better and actually helped teach his family about, uh, about God. He eventually, though, started a family church at his house on Saturdays with a couple of other folks who couldn't find a church in Lynchburg that, that took the Old Testament seriously enough. Of course, he was the pastor of this, this little flock, um, and sadly, lost track with him, and sadly, uh, later he was exposed in other sin, sin going on in his life then, and um, he's, as far as I know, abandoned the faith. Christians that do that play with shadows whenever the real thing stands in front of him. But, but what about his premise? Does the Old Testament law help Christians know the Lord better? And if so, in what way? I mean... What do, we, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Do we keep them? Do we keep some of them? Do we keep all of them? If not, why not? I mean, are Christians under the law? And then when you say that, you say what law? What part? Now, I doubt any of you are, are going to run out and start house church after this morning or even next week. But you may be tempted toward that error in, in other ways. You, you may add a little taste notch, touch knot, handle knot to your Christianity to make it better. You think that will make it stronger, will keep your, your heart from doing what it might be drawn or tempted to do. Or you may go in the other direction. and You may say, I'm in Christ and, and so I can live as I please. I'm lawless. I don't even have to worry about the, the do's and the don'ts. And that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching us about here. He's he's teaching us how a believer's relationship to the law has has changed and how we have a a new standing. And Paul is making his compelling argument in Romans chapter 7, which sets up chapter 8 about this life in the Spirit. And he's going to actually introduce the life of the Spirit in our passage this morning. But chapter 7 as a whole actually sits on the bookshelf of, of Romans between these two volumes of assurance. So you have chapter 5, which declares, having been justified, we have many assuring benefits that, that accompany our justification. The fact that God has declared us righteous, even though we're not. He's declaring us righteous because of faith in Christ alone. That's volume 1. The second is chapter 8 which is also about assurance. It describes God's greatest means of assurance, the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, He is your down payment. He is your deposit. He's the one that assures you on a regular basis that, that we're His. If we have not the Spirit of Christ, then, then we're not His. And what we said you could even think of chapter 5 ending with this large comma where Paul pauses and then addresses two major misunderstandings about the gospel, and then he picks it back up again in chapter 8. In chapter 7... It is there with this companion volume, chapter 6, where Paul deals with the questions about the extent of grace in chapter 6. If it's all grace, does that mean you just go on and sin? And then the application of the law. What about the law in chapter 7, which is the passage that we're in right now? Chapter 6 shows us that grace does not lead to more sin. It, it actually overpowers sin. If you want to overcome sin, you need to be in grace. 
And Romans 7 shows us how this grace triumphs in place of the law. It replaces the law, but still interacts with it in a certain way that we'll, we'll learn about. But it doesn't dishonor it. It doesn't dishonor the law. And law's not new. I mean, Paul has already brought up law in chapter 2, and where, where he told us that it was never God's method of salvation. In fact, he bluntly said, the law cannot save you. And in Romans 7, he's going to explain why the law cannot save you and why it can't provide the answer for sin, even though Christ has come. And he makes his argument by presenting his necessary funeral that gives way to a glorious wedding. And today, he's going to teach us about the, the spiritual fruit that this new union brings. It's spiritual fruit. Paul says in the gospel of Christ, there comes a significant change related to the law of God. And there was a necessary death to it. There was an end of the old and the beginning of the new. And in our new union with Jesus Christ, we can now serve God as he intended us to. Not only in external letter, but, but in the newness of, of the spirit. We say this entire chapter is... Is, is divided in three sections. And we're in the first one, which devi- defines our new relationship to the law in this likeness of a funeral and then a wedding. Then where we're going next week, Lord willing, verse 7, it defends the virtue of the law. And then in verse 13 through 25, the passages that you probably know best about Romans 7 describes an illustration of how that's worked out in real life, actually in Paul's life. And Paul begins here with this very practical illustration that we can understand about marriage. He, he states this common principle about the law's jurisdiction in verse 1, then he illustrates it with an analogy about this binding nature of marriage in verses 2 and 3, and finally he applies it with our union to Christ and draws his conclusion in verses 4 and six. He says, we have died to the law so that we might belong to another. We belong to another in order that we might bear fruit to God, and we can bear fruit now because we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. There, there, there was a change from the old so that we can bear fruit in, in the new. And that comes through the fullness of the Spirit, which he's going to teach us all about in, in Romans 8. So, so I always say, if there's something that doesn't click, just, just hang in there. More is, is coming. You have a whole chapter about the role of the Spirit. But before he gets there, he has to explain this change to the law. The law's a big deal. Where did it go? What do we do with it? And so that's what he does here in chapter 7. And he begins in this first section with these three descriptions of a believer's relationship to the law. There's the ruling principle of the law. There's the required death seen in this supporting illustration, and then there's this new representative marriage, which is described in his, his conclusion. We've covered verses 1 through 4. Today we're going to finish verses 5 and, and 6 and move on to the next section. First of all, though, he says this, the first description is this ruling principle of the law. Look at verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. I mean, Paul begins with a general principle that everyone would agree with. The law has limited jurisdiction. So those of you who love the law, those of you who are steeped in the law, you know that that law has limits. And he starts just like he did in, in, in chapter 6. He, he says, the statement I'm making, what I'm telling you right now is common sense. And he's not just talking only to Jews because he, he says, brethren... He's addressing the whole church. And what he's addressing them about is related to the law of Moses, which has general application to, to all people. But we know he's talking about the law of Moses because he actually quotes the Ten Commandments in verse 7, and he calls it the law of God in verse, verse 23. But Paul says that law, that law has now been engulfed by the promise that it pointed to. The shadow has passed away that my seminary friend was playing with, and the, the substance has come. It, it, it's here. I mean, the, the new work of the Messiah has come. And he writes that law on, not on tablets of stone, but on the fleshly tablets of the heart after providing circumcision of the heart. And he does that by this new work of the Spirit. You, you see, God's law existed prior to Moses. The law of God is an expression of, of who God is. What's right, what's wrong, is holiness. And, and the law's eternal. 
Just like God is. You can go to a number of places, but we'll pick two from Psalm 119. Verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances everlasting in both directions. Existed before Moses, and it will exist all the way through eternity. Verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in, in heaven. It, and it's, it's giving, the giving of the law, as God grants us his law, reveals his law, it's one of the ways he progressively reveals himself. Who is God? What is he like? What is good? What is not good? The law actually helps us see that. First Timothy actually tells us this very thing. First Timothy 1, 8, 9, a New Testament passage. It says, but we realize that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, how do you use it lawfully, uh, Paul? realizing the fact that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners. I mean, it's not useful for salvation. It's not made for the righteous person, the person already declared righteous. But what it does is it reveals, it reveals and exposes sin. And it didn't come all at once in the Bible. It's eternal, and it didn't come all at once in the Bible. It was given in its foundational form, we said, in the Garden of Eden. And there, God there, God establishes he's the lawgiver with that one tree and the permission for all the trees. And he, and he also shows that there's blessing when you obey him and there's consequence and curse when you violate. And after that, there were many expressions of, of God revealing himself, what is right and wrong and law, from the Garden of Eden all the way up to, all the way up to Mount Sinai. But the Mosaic Covenant is the greatest revelation of God prior to Christ. In the law of Moses, God reveals himself in a, in, in a voluminous way, a magnificent way, a very particular, very particular ways. And once again, God is revealing himself not only to his, his own people, his chosen people, but, but to the whole world. And in it, he, de- he details every aspect of life. It's not just a tree and all of these other trees. He, he showed them what was clean and what was unclean and what was holy and what was unholy. And, and yet he establishes the exact same principle. I'm the lawgiver. This is who I am. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. If you obey me, there's blessing. If you disobey my authority, there's a curse. And Paul says that same law, as a revelation of God, that there is a God and that right and wrong is inherent for every human being that's born. Not in the detail of Leviticus, not in the detail of the Mosaic Covenant, but the principle is there in every heart which is what he told us back in chapter 2. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, they don't have the law of Moses, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience-bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. I mean, so the problem that Paul is dealing with in Romans 7 is a universal problem. It's not just a Jewish problem. And we're not accountable to the Mosaic law like the Jews were, but we were and are accountable to God, the lawgiver, and what we do understand about him. Paul says it was just enough to condemn us. So when Paul says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, he's speaking to all of those who know the Mosaic law and those who have a general awareness of the law's binding nature. And and everyone knows the principle that there's a limit to the law. Legal claims are binding upon a person only while they're alive. That's the principle he lays out. Look at verse 1. His audience, and here's what he says. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? I mean, the law only regulates the activities of the living, not the dead. It loses jurisdiction at death. That's Paul's point. Hey, those of you who are aware of the law, you're also aware that there was an end point planned for for, for the law. And then he illustrates that in a very common area of life, which is also universal, which is this second Description. It's the required death demonstrated in this illustration of marriage. Look at verse 2. He says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living and she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But 
if her husband dies, she's loosed from the law. She's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. He says, we all know marriage is binding. And he uses it to illustrate what he means with the law here. We all know that the husband has authority over, over his wife in marriage unless he dies. And if he does die, she's loosed from that legal bond. I mean, we say things like, until death do us part. You just had an example of that yesterday if you came to the wedding. And when death does come, there's an end of that union. Not an end of the love or the memories, but, but of the legal bond. That former husband no longer has authority over, over that wife. And if there's a, a loosing of that connection, then another one can be formed. And we all understand that too. With, with this widow, this widow is no longer bound by law to her husband who passed away. Verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another, she's called an adulteress because she's still under that old authority. But if her husband dies, she's free, free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. I mean, Paul's point is obvious. The law rules over people in a binding union, but death alters its jurisdiction, which Paul now applies to believers who have come to Christ by grace. If you would at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And here was the reason, in order that you might bear fruit for God. Here's the third description. It's a representative marriage to Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's main point of the entire section. He sets up the principle in verse 1. He illustrates it in verses 2 and, and 3. And now he states his main point. Very logical. And then in verse 5 and 6, he explains further what he means by what he says right here in verse 4. So verse 4 is the heart. Everything leads up to that. And then 5 and 6 actually explain it. He says, in the gospel, you have been freed from your former relationship to the law. Just like the, the woman in the marriage. And that was so that you might be joined to another, and that other is Jesus Christ. I mean, the law exists. It still has a purpose which is why he switches the analogy around here, but believers are, were made to die to it in Christ, meaning its dominion and its subsequent condemnation. His point is to those who know the law's binding authority. What took place in the gospel was totally legal, is what he's saying. I mean, the coming Messiah and the new covenant work it was in complete accordance with the law of God. So Paul's message is it didn't violate it in, in, in any way. I mean, just like the, the wife to her husband, the law no longer has the same relationship over us in Christ. And it was the, the death of Christ that brought this about. He's very specific in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. You, you were made to die. Meaning it's, it's not something that you did but something that God brought about, and he brought it about in your union with, with Christ. I mean, that's what Paul told us in chapter 6. That happened at our conversion. I mean, while the law is from God and the law is good, its reign over us had, had horrible consequences because of our sin. It condemned us, and it also didn't allow us to bear any fruit. So Paul is now showing us how God removes that, that reign. He can't just wipe his hand and say, oh, yeah, uh, I was kidding in the Old Testament. He's got to do something with it, and he did. So how God removes its reign over us in Christ by the cross, and he gets very specific about the means. It was, verse 4, it was through the body of Christ. I mean, this death he speaks of happened to you vicariously, which is why he belabored all of that union stuff in chapter 5. In chapter 6, I mean, the spiritual union with Christ being uh, united us with his, with his death as well. And that's the funeral that Paul's talking about here. I mean, being joined with Christ also joins a Christian with, with, with Christ's death. I mean, that's, what, what, that's our hope of the gospel. I mean, coming to Christ doesn't, doesn't give us the ability to, to earn righteousness. It, it gives us the credit of Christ's righteousness. It connects us to him. 
it gives us access to, to the record of one that, that we need, that, that we, we couldn't get on our own. Not only the forgiveness of sins, but the, but the credit of righteousness. It unites us with his death. It took place at the moment that you were saved. That's when you were baptized into Christ. At that moment, everything that happened to him happened to you. God treats you in that way. So as, so as he died, you died to the power of sin, which is what he was talking about in chapter 6. And now he says you also died to the law's dominion. Apostle also says something else happened. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. It was totally legal. And it's not just another, but to one who is to never die again. The, the, the one who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And Paul says that, that when we were, we were converted, we were united with Christ. And now we're, he talks about being united in this, 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 living, this, this living relationship, in his resurrection as well. We're now joined to the one who's been raised from the dead. And this new relationship can never be broken. It's just as he's saying, I mean, it's common sense. I mean, there, the Old Testament told you that the law had limits to its jurisdiction. He's now saying there is no limit to, to, to Christ. That, that new union will never end. It's an everlasting union because you've been raised from the dead. We were separated from the, from the old dominion, the law that brought us condemnation. But this new relationship brings us life and you can never be separated which is exactly what he'll say at the end of Romans 8, the passage that we love, right? Christ being raised from the dead can never die again, and so this new relationship to him is an everlasting one. There's no condemnation, and it's an ongoing, an everlasting, an unending relationship. And while the law passed away, Christ will never pass away. And being in union with him actually brings a fruitful life, a life in the Spirit which you'll also explain in chapter 8. The change was for a purpose. Look at the end of verse 4. It was all in order that we might bear fruit to God. Death to the old, the joining to the new, the one who has been raised to new life, is so that we might bear fruit to God. Here's the goal of it all. The purpose of this death to the law, the end of the law, the end of the old covenant, this subsequent marriage to Christ is so that we could do something that we were never able to do under the law, bear fruit, bear spiritual fruit. In fact, dying to the law's dominion is necessary. Our death to the law is required before we could bear fruit. It's a strong way to emphasize this. Some dismiss the, that he's, Paul's carrying on this marriage analogy all the way here into, into verse 4, but, but I think it's very clear that, that he is. Just with this idea of fruit bearing. Paul's saying that you were in a barren marriage with the law. You had no ability to bear fruit. Nobody argues about the fruit bearing. It's just, is Paul uh, wanting us to think about, about the, the original purpose of marriage? I think he does. And Paul's showing us why the old had to go away. Because it, it couldn't help you bear fruit. And the illustration of marriage clearly demonstrates both points. So the marriage has a, has a binding aspect. The wife is under the authority of her husband. In the same way we were under the law's authority, he says that the death of Christ, when, uh, at, at, at our death in the Lord, we're, we're married to, to Christ, and the reason was that we might produce spiritual fruit, which was the original purpose of marriage. Now, fruit bearing, be fruitful and multiply. We were made as image bearers to be fruitful and multiply. But all that we could do after the fall was replicate the image of Adam, this fallen image. So now, and in that fallen state, only thing that the law could do was, was condemn us. And it had no inherent power to change us. The law was completely and totally incapable of subduing our sin or changing us. So the old covenant had to end. And it only ends with a death. You needed the new covenant to come so you could bear fruit to God. And now he explains exactly what he means by this fruit bearing. Look, if you would, at, at verse 5. Notice it begins with the little word for. For, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, verse 6, having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in 
newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the, of, of the letter. I mean, Paul makes three contrasts here to explain exactly what he means in, in verse 4. Why it was necessary that, that, that our relationship to the law had to end so that we could bear fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit? And again, notice it starts with four, so he's explaining what he just said. Be contrast what we were versus what we are now. He contrasts how the law affected us at that point in time. Then the law stirred up our sin versus, versus now it assists us to serve. And he contrasts what, what both of those states produced. Law interacting in both of those states. One brought forth fruit of death and the other brings new service in the spirit. And, and he divides his explanation between the old life and the new life. And you can clear that clearly. Uh, you can see that clearly. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is the old. He says, while we were in the flesh. Notice he's speaking past tense. And then verse 6 is the new. He says, but now we have been released. You've been loosed. And we are in this newness of the Spirit, whatever that means. Once again, you have the gospel right here in a, in a very small package. One writer said, if you don't have a, a, a were then and a but now, you're not a Christian. If you don't have what you were before and what you are now in Jesus Christ, then the gospel has not come to you. I mean, if the gospel is anything, it has a B.C. and now, and now an A.D. I mean, Paul provides this, this same uh, summary of the gospel, the, the before and after, in many places. Ephesians 2 is probably the one that, that, that's most familiar with you. Ephesians 2 you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he describes how. He says, but God. God is rich in mercy. I mean, here's the gospel in a nutshell. He did the same thing in chapter 6. How he does it in chapter 6. He lays out his case. Talking about the grace and sin. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. This is what you are now. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, having been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. You were, you, you have become. You know, Paul does the same thing here, explaining how the gospel now, how that change relates to the law. I mean, before he's talking about how it relates to to our slavery to sin. Now he talks about how this before and, and, and now relate, rate, relates to the law. You were something before related to the law. Now you're something new. And the place to shout here is the past tense, right? I mean, he says we were in the flesh. I mean, a Christian is no longer in an unregenerate state where we are condemned by the law, dominated by our base nature. You're no longer condemned. You now have a new nature, which means you have the power and the ability that you didn't have before. And to explain this, he says, think back to your unsaved days, when you were still married to your old husband, when you related to the law in the flesh. B.C. days. He calls it while you were in the flesh. The term flesh... It's used many different ways in, in, in Scripture. So the first question you have to answer is, how is Paul using it here? What does he mean by flesh? I mean, sometimes it, it means all of mankind, like in Isaiah 40. The voice says, cry out, and I asked, what shall I cry out? Here's the answer. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the, like the flowers of the field. There, he's talking about all of mankind. Mankind is, is like grass. Sometimes it means the physical body, not just all people, but, but the physical body. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. He's really talking about human body there. Or another one, Galatians 2.20, talking about the human body. I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, now I now live in my body. I live out, I live by faith in the, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But it can also take on this, this meaning of, of your sin nature, your unregenerate nature, which is how Paul uses it here. Let me show you, I think, probably one of the best verses that kind of packages his use here and shows you the contrast. Ephesians 2.3. Remember, he's doing the same thing. Then and now, he uses the same word two different ways here. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, there's the same word, and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. The first word there is exactly how he uses it here in, in Romans 7. The lust of your flesh, meaning your unsaved nature. And then he uses the same term talking about how that unsaved nature plays out in life. In your physical body, and that's contrasted with your mind. In your members, and also in your mind. It, it's, the use is very clear in Romans 7. Because Paul says... In verse 5, while you were in the flesh. So you know he can't be talking about the physical body because you're still in one of those. He can't be saying while you were in a physical body, you're still in one. Past tense. The context clearly shows he's talking about our unsaved nature. While you were in your unregenerate nature, which, which he says involves sinful passions. And this flesh contrasted with the spirit is... Is, is what he's going to do as we move on in, in, in Romans. Romans 8 uh, says we don't walk or live according to the flesh. We don't, we don't live according to our unsaved nature anymore, but, but now according to the Spirit. So before we had a, a life dominated by the flesh, by this lower fleshly nature, and now we have a, a life controlled by the, by the Spirit. And we were in the realm of the flesh. And we were under its dominion. And now we're in the, the, the realm of the Spirit, under its dominion. And the reason I'm belaboring that is because understanding that is the key, not only to grasping the gospel, but, but what Paul's teaching here in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. He'll explain all of that in detail in chapter 8, the flesh and the, and, and, and the spirit. And this is Paul's introductory statement there, right here. But if you don't grasp this, this idea, this concept, this biblical, I, biblical concept of, of what you were, and when you were, you, you were... In the flesh, you're going to mess up the gospel, and you're going to struggle in your Christian life, which is where many people go astray. I mean, you must understand the human condition, what the Bible teaches about it, or Christianity falls apart. I mean, if you don't understand that human beings are born corrupt, then the gospel is not good news, it's moral reform. I mean, if you think man can do something on his own, then the gospel is not hope for the lost, it's a plan for those who need a better path for human improvement. And yet the Bible is unmistakably clear. There are only two possible, possible positions that mankind could be in. You're either in the flesh, and therefore under the law and condemned, whether that's the law articulated by Moses or the law written on the heart, or you're in the Spirit and in Christ, which comes by grace alone. I mean, frankly, this is the fundamental error of the Pharisees or Second Temple Judaism. I mean, the Pharisees didn't believe that they were born corrupt. And they thought the law then could solve their problem. They saw the law as a means of salvation, but it was never that. I mean, Paul says if it were possible for a written code to do that, it would be true. But that's not possible because you were born in the flesh. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in John 3 to Nicodemus. I mean, Nicodemus thought that he just needed to add something to his life, like the rich young ruler. What, what, what more must I do? And he obviously thinks Jesus is the one who can, who can teach him that. And Jesus says, you don't need to add anything to your life. You, you need something new. You need completely new nature. And he explains why. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You need a spiritual birth. And then he says something interesting. He said, you should know these things. You are a teacher of the law. I mean, implying that this has always been God's plan. It's not something new. You always, the law was going to end. The law couldn't do 
what, what you needed it to do. So, so there always had to be the Messiah would come. The new covenant, you should know these things, Nicodemus. The law could not produce what is necessary. Not because of the law, but because you're born in the flesh. And then the flesh produces the flesh. You're born with a corrupt nature. But whoever is born from above has the spirit and a new nature and a new way of living and the ability to bear fruit. And what Paul is describing here is how that old nature died. It it was through the cross in verse 4. And then that union with him, which comes by faith alone, is what brings about the change. And he's explaining here why this had to take place. It was so that you could bear fruit for God. And now he says it was because in the flesh, in that old state, you couldn't. Here's why you couldn't bear fruit to God. In those former days, you you had sinful passions at work in you. Look at verse 5. He says, "For think back, while you were in the flesh, the sinful passions were at work in your members, the members of your body, to bear fruit for death. He says, while in the unsaved state, there were these desires, these appetites that, that were at work towards sin. Now, human beings have natural desires. I mean, like to eat, to like to grow in knowledge, I mean, to have intimacy. And there's nothing wrong with any of those appetites. They, they were created by God. They were God-given and they were part of, of creation. But what should be neutral appetites in our unsaved state? Sin corrupts them. They become sinful passions, passions that actually lead to sin because of being born in the flesh. Our natural desires become sin, sinful in many ways, but I think three primarily. By wanting too much of them, by wanting them in a way that God has has not provided or in a way that he's prohibited or wanting them for the wrong reason. I mean, I have a desire to eat and desire to sleep, but it becomes sinful when I want too much of those things. I have a desire for intimacy, but it becomes sinful when I express that outside of marriage or for the same sex. I have a desire to know more, to even know more about God, but that can become sinful when I, when I do that to be boastful or to lift myself up. So these natural, God-given desires and appetites, because you're born in, in Adam, have sinful expressions. These expressions are at work in you in a powerful way. Verse 5, the, the sinful passions were at work in your members. It's a very strong word. Again, you show you Philippians 2, how Paul uses a, a specific word here. You know this passage. Look at the two words for work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's the first word. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and do for his good pleasure. Both words about work, but they're two completely different words. The first word is a milder form. And the second one used for God's work is the powerful one. Works mightily in you. God is at work in you. It's the same word. That powerful word is the same word that Paul uses here in Romans 7. He says these sinful cravings, these cravings which which were led towards sin, were at work in you in a powerful way. On a continual basis. It's, It's an imperfect, meaning it's something that's ongoing. They're powerfully working without ceasing. The the exertion of these lustful passions was strong and ongoing in your unsafe state, Paul says. And they bore the fruit of death. But notice, it was the fertilizer. It was the law. Look at verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit of death. If you're sitting here listening to this going, I mean, this sounds like something I've heard before. It's because it is. It's exactly the same thing Paul said in, in chapter 6. But what he adds here is the law. How the law interacts with your unsafe state. And its purpose now whenever you've been transformed in the new. I mean, Paul says, when the law says, hey, you shouldn't have those desires. Rather than agreeing and changing course, your sinful nature rebels and does evil instead. That's how the law interacts. This is not any new teaching about the the state before, the state after. The new teaching is, okay, how does the law interact 
with an unsaved person and now a saved person. Paul says the, the law without the new birth has only one crop, death. The law's not bad. It reveals who God is and what's right and wrong. He'll make that explicitly plain in the very next section. But without the Spirit's fruit, it can only, the Spirit's work, it can only bear fatal fruit. My friend Rick Holland said, Paul is saying, prohibitions tend to arouse those things prohibited. It's true, isn't it? He said, take a test. Take a five-year-old to your house, draw their attention to a cabinet door, point to it, and say, whatever you do, do not open that cabinet door and look inside of it and then walk out of the room and watch and see what happens. You know exactly what's going to happen because that's what happened with you. Whenever God pointed out, don't do that. There's something in you that said, well, I wonder what's in there. Well, I wonder if it's good. Well, I wonder if I can just do a little bit of it and get away with it. That's how the sinful heart responds to the law. Well, well, maybe whenever it says, I shall not commit adultery, he's not just talking about the physical part. I mean, he's just talking about the physical part. So maybe I can, maybe I can have some of the, a little bit of that in my heart. What is, this is a common thought that comes to your mind whenever you see a, a speed limit sign. First of all, is there a police officer around? And then how far over the limit can I go before I get a ticket? Is it 5 miles an hour? Is it 10 miles an hour? Or when you see the sign that says, no fishing here, you, you think there must be some big fish in there, where's my pole? That's how your flesh responds to God's law, and in much more serious ways than speeding or fishing. I mean, while we were without Christ, all our flesh could, could do then. That, that was it. That's how it responded. The law is good, but it has no power to change that. No, no power to change a heart like that. In the next two sections, we'll explain that in detail. And then he'll illustrate how all that plays out in Paul's life. You see, God is gracious to give us the law. He's gracious to give us the rules to show us what is right and, and wrong. But the minute that God gives us the rules, there's something that rises up in us and wants to break them. And God did that on purpose. Not only to show us what was right, but as a grace. He progressively gave us more and more law as grace to show us where the real problem lies. It's not with the rule. The problem resides within us, which is what Paul meant at the end of chapter 5. And he says the law came along so that the transgression could increase. But as a grace. And our rebellious hearts are so flawed that when it receives something good, it actually wants to do evil with it. Which is a side note. Uh, is why law is being so vehemently attacked today in, in culture. We don't think that the, the issue is actually about rights or control over a woman's body or the social issues are about politics. It's about rebellion. That's why it's, it's, it's not enough. Even if you say, well, do it, that's fine, live however you want, when the government says, it's okay, go ahead. It's now legal. People say, that's not enough. Everybody's got to agree with me that what I'm doing is, is right. Why? It's not about what they're doing only. It's about the uprising that's stirred up when, when they're confronted by anything or anyone that reminds them that there's a God. And that there's a right and there's a wrong and there's condemnation. That's where all the lawlessness comes from. There's nothing to do with all of the other stuff that you hear. I mean, that's all Wizard of Oz stuff. That's, that's man behind the curtain. It's about rebellion and removing God's law, removing law in general, which reflects God. It's also why we're told in Romans 13 that you should support authority and not rebel against it. Because it's an echo of God and, and his authority. Calvin said in his comment on, on this verse in, in Romans 7, he says, The work of the law in the absence of the Spirit is to inflame our hearts still more so that they burst forth into such lustful desires. Cranfield said, Challenged by the law, which claims man for God and for his neighbor, man's self-centeredness recognizes that it is being called in question and attacked and so seeks all the more furiously to defend itself. That's why whenever we, we're confronted with the law, we, we say things like, well, I'm not as bad as an axe murderer or something else. And this base nature produces desires that lead to sin, and that produces deadly fruit. Look at verse 5. 
He says, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit of death. Now don't forget, this is an explanation of verse 4. He's explaining why our relationship to the law had to change. And then what this new relationship brings. What does he mean by, by spiritual fruit? And he says it's because the law could never help us bear fruit unto God, but he adds something else here. It didn't just fail to produce good fruit, it actually produced death. Not just physical death, spiritual death, but the second death. Which is how he ends chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But thank God. Thank God that's not us anymore, right? Look at verse 6. But now, but now, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Paul says, but now, what's our condition now? He says, having been loosed from the law. It's the exact same word for the woman uh, when her husband dies. She's loosed. From her husband. It means to put out of use, to render completely inoperative. And he reminds us how that took place. He says, having died to that which we were bound. It's a definitive loosing. Christ's death has released us from the law's bondage. He has rendered us dead to it. In what way? And for what purpose? Well, he tells us, verse 6. Now, having been loosed from the law, that came through the death, having died to that which we were bound. One day we, were, we were bound under the law, condemned by it. Why? The result was so that we might serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. I mean, a believer is no longer under the law. So he's not condemned by it. Not bound to it. It doesn't rule over him with the sentence of guilty, which is what he will declare in Romans 8, verse 1, when he begins. There is, there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's now, in this new state, because condemnation comes by the law. In fact, in fact, a believer cannot be condemned. He doesn't say he will not, he cannot be, because the law doesn't reign over him anymore, because he's not under the law's dominion. But the result of that change was so that we could do something that we could never do before. The end of verse 6, so that we might serve in newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. And remember, Paul is explaining further why the old relationship had to be broken. He said in verse 4, it was just simply so that we could bear fruit for God. Well, what does being bear fruit for God mean? Well, right here is further explanation. He now describes it as service to God. And here's exactly why John MacArthur wrote the book Slave, because you can't see this in your English translation. So that we might serve is not like a servant that can quit whenever they want. It's the word doulos, comes from the word doulos, slave service. The goal is, is service, literally be a, be a slave. And not just any kind of slave, it's a happy slave. It's a, it's a spiritual slave, a spirit-filled slave. And serving in that way is not new. Serving is not new. What's new is this character of the service, so, so, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit. I mean, we owe God everything. He's the Creator. It's right to, to be commanded to serve Him, but you couldn't do that in your fallen state. If you did, you did it grudgingly, and you couldn't do it well. All that it ended up doing was bearing fruit of death, but now we're enslaved to God in, in, in a new way, in the newness of the Spirit. Now that, now that service takes on a completely different character. Everyone was to serve God in the Old Testament. The difference is, is now the character of your service. You, you serve in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, with the fruit of the Spirit. This is not drudging toil. This is joyful work. It's spiritual work. He says it's work not in the oldness of the letter, it's, it's, not just in, uh, it's not just external. It's internal and external. It's not just external like the law. It's work by someone who has been set free. It's work by someone who's been empowered by the Spirit. It's work by someone who understands that they were something and that they're not that anymore. And that totally changes how you serve the Lord, doesn't it? It's work by someone who's no longer condemned. And what a difference that makes.
He'll go on and explain what this work, spiritual work, looks like in chapter 8. But Lloyd-Jones says there, there are people who actually read the law and say it's good, it's right, and I should keep it. And they try to do that in the arm of their own strength, and they fail. A Christian who serves God does it saying the law is good and I am no longer condemned by it. Therefore, I serve in freedom. And that's an entirely different way. See, the law was never a means of salvation. It's never for the righteous, never a means of justification. Because the only thing that it could do in our sinful state was render us worse. But now, rather than looking to an external code that would tell you what to do, and what pleases God, we look to Christ, and His Spirit now empowers us to do what we could never do before. But the key is you have to have a before and an after. You have to recognize that the fundamental problem is not the law and how much of the law and whether you do a little bit or all of it. What you realize is the law has condemned you, and the way your heart responds to, to, to the lawgiver is rebellion, and you're guilty, and that has to change, and there's no way to change it, and if you've lived long enough, you realize that. You're still that five-year-old in heart, but with things way more serious than don't open the cupboard door, things that devastate your life, and that's the only way that you can respond, but thank God there's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel in which you stand which can say to you, but such were some of you, and you've been washed, you've been changed, you've been regenerated by the Spirit who gives you new life, takes away the condemnation, and gives you something new. And the only way that you can get that is by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, who came to save us. He didn't come to the world to call the righteous, but sinners. Paul says, of whom I am chief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. I find the exact same experience every time I approach it, study it, or even teach it. You answer some of the most fundamental questions of my heart, and then I find more. What does that mean? Well, what about this? And then I go to the next passage, and you answer that question. And then I find the answer and more questions. And then I go to the next and the next. And you say, this is eternal life, that we may know you. What a joy it is to try to learn who you are and learn what pleases you. Not condemned. Justified. And we'll have all eternity to make up what we lack here. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the death to what condemned us. Thank you for a new heart and a new spirit which gives us new desires and new abilities. Help us to serve you in that newness. In Jesus' name, amen.